The following audio is from our sermon series titled, The Whole Story, Genesis to Revelation. For more information about Harvest City Church, please visit our website at harvest.city. Well, if you're new around here, uh, we're waking, working our way through the Bible this year, and our goal is uh, to hit on important stories and try to understand them in the context of the grand story of redemption so that we can learn the whole story of the Bible. This morning, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and 17, and for the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about a young boy named David who becomes king over God's people. And those of you who've been following along with us know that we've been trying to roughly follow the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, David's got like three stories, okay, in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, we're going to uh, try and cover like two and a half of those this morning in one uh, sitting. So uh, if you're tracking with the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, you got your work cut out for you this, this week and pounding that out with the fam. Uh, but as we get started this morning, I'd like to tell you a story that I've heard uh, in multiple ways from multiple different perspectives over the years, okay? The story always goes a little something like this. It starts with uh, a young person uh, who has a vision for their life. And, and, and it, so it starts with them seeing, like, someday uh, I want to be uh, a person in a position of influence. Or uh, someday uh, I want to be a person who has this job and gets to spend my time doing these things. Or someday uh, I want to be a person who's married to uh, Mrs. Wright or Mr. Right, whatever it might be, they have a vision at that point in their life. They see some things that they would like to see happen in their life. And the story usually goes something like this. That young person then has a conversation with uh, a mentor figure, right? And so they sit down across the uh, table or, or on a walk or whatever with their mentor figure, and uh, they tell them about this vision that they've had. Man, this is, uh, I'd love to see this happen in my life someday. I'd like to land here someday. I'd like to do it with these kind of people someday. And uh, then, you know, they look, they look their mentor in the eye and they say, so how do I get there, right? Like, clearly you've, you've gone down that road farther than I have. You, you have some of these things going for you. Could you just tell me what are the seven steps to getting to where you're at? What is the key to unlock this journey to be able to get where you're at, right? And the crazy thing is that uh, I really think as young people, right, like most of us have sat in that seat at some point in time, we ask somebody that question, we literally think they're just going to be able to tell us, right? Like this is it, and then I'm going to do those things, and I'm going to be able to get there. But most often, I think uh, a wise uh, Christ-centered mentor is going to look them in the eyes and say something like this. That actually the most important thing for their future is them being shaped into the person that God wants them to be when they arrive at that role. When they arrive in that relationship or when they arrive in that position. So if your future is, uh, man, I want to be an NBA coach someday, then you better get started coaching a youth basketball team, right? Or if your vision of the future is influencing the nations for the glory of God, then, hey, you better get started now having international students at your table on a regular basis. Or if your vision for the future is one where you get married to a godly woman, then you better start living out the gospel in your life, in community, and on mission, because God's got some work to do to transform you into a godly man that could actually lead a godly woman, that could nourish her and cherish her and wash her with the water of the word and sacrifice for her the way that the Bible calls a godly man to do for his wife. You see, this morning, I think God wants each one of us to hear that his primary goal in this journey that we called life is not merely to get, to get us to a destination, but to prepare us for that destination. And my sermon title this morning is simply, David, God's Hero. And we're going to do this a little bit differently this morning, okay? Uh, I would love for you to pull out a Bible. If you want to use the Bible under your chair or you want to pull it up on your phone, we'll have it up here. Uh, but I would love for us to walk through this morning with an open Bible. Uh, but here's how we're going to do it differently. It's not that I'm not going to tell you that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training righteousness. I am going to remind you of that. 
Because the Bible is like the authoritative word of God. The reason that we open it, the reason we preach it, the reason we sing it uh, week in and week out is because it is how we hear from the Lord. Uh, but this morning, my first two points in my sermon are basically unpacking this story for you, okay? First Samuel 16 and 17. So if I was to read it and then I was to come back to read it again, like, uh, okay, we'd be here for quite a while. So here's what we're going to do is you're going to just have to trust me on that one. Uh, I'm gonna, I would hope that you just open up your Bibles. We'll walk through this together, uh, but I'm not going to start off reading it. I'm going to start off telling you this. As we look at 1 Samuel 16 and 17, we're going to see a couple of things. That God is looking for something different in his hero. That stories like David and Goliath are not first and foremost about me and you, although we get tripped up and we start to think that on a regular basis. And that God prepared David for the palace, and that preparation took place in a pasture. You see, God's primary goal on this journey we call life is not merely uh, to get us to a destination, but to prepare us for that destination. Will you all pray with me? God, our hope this morning is that you would meet us here. I think of Moses uh, tracking along in Exodus and being like, God, I'm not going one step further without you. And so, God, would that be our posture this morning, uh, that I wouldn't speak another word apart from you speaking through me, that we would not um, move any farther along this morning as a people uh, without you being the one that empowers us. God, we long for you to move in our midst this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the first point this morning is that God is looking for something different in his hero. Let me catch you up a little bit on where we're at in this whole story from Genesis to Revelation, okay? Uh, because we've moved pretty fastly through, uh, speedily through the Bible uh, recently. You know, we took some time to work out some of the big picture details early on in the Pentateuch and Genesis, but now it feels like we're flying through chapters and books of the Bible week at a time, right? Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, my friend Dominique is walking us through Joshua, and we went through this whole uh, book of Joshua basically in one week, talking about how Joshua led God's people into the promised land. You know, they, they had to take it for themselves, and uh, so we talked about Joshua as this leader that uh, reminds us of Jesus and points us to the true and better leader that Jesus was. And then uh, last week, we spent uh, time in the book of Ruth, and if you remember, uh, Ruth takes place in the days of the judges, okay? And the days of the judges uh, were those that people only did evil all the time. It felt like continually they, they did what was right in their own eyes is the phrase that was used over and over again. And so uh, I don't know about y'all, but like I've really loved this moment. If you're reading on the whole story plan, uh, the chronological one, this is probably not hitting for you. That probably already happened for you. But for me, in my Bible reading plan uh, this year, my uh, Bible reading starting to over overlap with this like series the last few weeks and it's been like super uh great because uh, I just love it when these things overlap in my life and so I was reading this week and uh towards the end of Judges uh in the beginning of Samuel uh Samuel makes his sons judges and you'd be like wow Samuel's a dope prophet this dude is really good at what he does right and so his sons you're expecting they're going to be good judges and they're not <laughs> And so actually, it's because Samuel made his son ju sons judges and they weren't very good at judges, that ended up being the impetus for God's people to be like, hey, can we have a king now? Like, uh, we are not tracking really well with these sons of yours, Samuel. And so actually, at this point in the story is when God's people say uh, they want a king. And he's like, but I was supposed to be your king. And they're like, yeah, but we want one that we can see and touch that can protect us and lead us out in battle. And God's like, you don't, you don't really know what you're asking for. Uh, but he gives them what they wanted. And so he tells Samuel, this prophet, to go out and find a king. And Samuel finds this dude named Saul. I, I read this about this in my quiet times this week as well. You see, Saul was what I would call the people's choice. All right. Uh, the way that the scriptures say it is that he was the most handsome of all the men and that he was taller than all the other men from the waist up. It makes me wonder what his legs were like. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know why it only says from the waist up. Like, dude was just ginormous from here up. But like, who knows? Maybe he had small legs. Maybe he had really big legs. We don't know. Right. Uh, but he had he was a people's choice. Right. Uh, he's tall, he's charismatic, he's good-looking, all those things that you think about uh, the way we think about leaders. Uh, in other words, Saul's a first-round draft choice, okay? This is the dude that you'd pick. Uh, and he started out okay, 
but he turned out to be a king like most other kings. Power corrupted his heart. He became a proud, self-willed dude. He used his position of power to serve himself rather than the people he was called to lead. He was using and abusing people and bending the laws of God whenever it served him. And so God rejected him as king and told Samuel to go look for a new king. Those of you that were with us last week got the hint, right, that, uh, of where Samuel might go looking for this new king, right? Think about that's like the whole impetus of the book of Ruth. It ends with this family line, this genealogy that flows from Ruth and her womb all the way to the house of Jesse, where this dude David would be born into the family and he would be the king. And so uh, Samuel goes to Jesse's door, and he knocks on the door, and Jesse opens the door and says, uh, says to him, hey, welcome. And, and Samuel's like, well, God told me that one of your sons is supposed to be the king. And uh, Samuel's like, oh, I got this. I mean, Jesse's like, I got this. I know exactly which one of my sons is supposed to be the king. And so he brings out to him his son Eliab, who, by the way, is very similar to Saul. I'm sure he's tall from the waist up. Okay, uh, he uh, had a commanding presence. He's probably quite handsome. And this is what the scriptures say, if you're following along. Verse 6 and 7 of 1 Samuel 16. says, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Okay, the real question here, though, is, yo, Samuel, how did you not pick up what I'm putting down already, dude? Like, okay, I told you once, like, we're not just looking for a tall dude from the waist up. We're not just looking for the handsome guy. We're not just looking for the guy that can lead us out in battle, right? He's like, uh, Eliab, I, I know what he looks like, but he's not the dude. The crazy thing is we don't have to dig too deep into Eliab's story to see that he turns out to be critical, arrogant, and untrusting of God. And so God says, I'm looking for something different in my king. Y'all think about that. How God says, I'm looking for something different in my king. When God looks for leaders, he doesn't look at what we look at. He doesn't usually value what we typically value. He's not after the pretty face. He never looks at someone and says, oh man, your, your wardrobe must be filled with great clothes. Or man, you've got a really impressive resume. I'm, I'm super impressed with what you've done so far. He doesn't look at somebody and think, uh, man, you must work out. No. God looks at beauty in here. And it's only in here. For God, the matter of the heart is the heart of the matter, especially when it comes to kings, leaders, and heroes. So let me ask you before we move on, how much time do you spend preparing your heart? You see, some of us spend so much time preparing our outward appearance, obsessing what we look like on the outside, working out, dressing in a stylish manner, uh, saying the right things. Uh, maybe you even thought about those things on your way here this morning, right? But God looks at purity. God, look, God looks at compassion. God looks at humility. People who are quick to ask forgiveness and quick to extend forgiveness. You see... Samuel should have known this, but even the best prophets forget things from time to time. So God says to Samuel, nope, not this one. And so Samuel says to a surprised Jesse, well, uh, God has not chosen him. Do you have another son? And here we get to verse 10 and 11. If you're following along, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Nope, 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 nope. Nope. Is that six or seven? Uh, nope, maybe. Uh, only that's that many times. The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Y'all, uh, I love learning stuff about language. I don't know about y'all, so if I bore you with it from time to time, you just have to get, get over it, okay? Uh, but uh, there's this word here that's used when it says, there remains yet the youngest. It's like this word hackathon or something in Hebrew. And scholars say it literally carries the connotation of being the runt of the litter, 
okay? So my guess is that David at this point looked exactly like uh, something like Scott Gaskill at like 16, 17, whatever, 18 years old. I was 135 pounds sopping wet as a senior in high school, okay? Uh, like nothing to me whatsoever. Uh, we had those basketball jerseys, those, those ones that came out here, those cutoff ones that make uh, tiny kids look like they have even tinier arms, okay? You can only look good in one of those jerseys if you're, you know, if you have arms, <laughs> like, you know, like I didn't. And uh, so my guess is like that David is somewhat the runt of the litter here. Not only that, not only is he called the runt uh, in this language, but he's also got the lowest job on the social totem pole in Israel, right? He's keeping the sheep. This is like the equivalent of being a janitor at the time, okay? Washing toilets, stuff like that. This is what it says, picks up in verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Okay, I know it's a language thing again, but we gotta pause here, okay? Uh, ruddy, some people say that ruddy means redheaded and freckled on one side, okay? And then there's others that say that ruddy means he was dirty, disheveled, tanned, and smelled like the pasture, okay? So I don't know how all this, it can be in one word. I don't know how people can't get down what ruddy really means. But one thing we know for sure, David had some pretty eyes, y'all. This dude could be like, you know, batting those eyelashes. He, he had it going on in the eyes, okay? The point is he doesn't look like a king or like a man of war. He looks more like Justin Bieber or one of the Jonas Brothers a few years back, okay? He's a runt kid with a baby face, all right? And then we continue on. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Okay, y'all, this is what we need to remember when we think about how God anointed his king and the spirit of God rushed on this young man is there was not something in this young man that was going to come out and that's what was going to make him king. It was God that came into this young man. It was the spirit of God that filled him, that made him the man that would one day be called a man after God's own heart. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we so full of ourselves that maybe we don't have enough room for God to come in and to make us into the one that he wants to make us into? Because if you're full of yourself, you might not be able to be filled with the spirit of God. Harvest City, I think we would do well to pause for a moment here and think about what God is looking for in his king. You see, you and I might not ever become a queen or a queen. At least at this point, it seems like you're living in a democratic country, you know, high, highly unlikely that that's going to be your story. But I know God has in mind a role for each one of us that when we're in that role, in his timing and by his strength, God's light is going to shine brightly and powerfully through you. You see, the question in front of us is this. When we get there, will we be so full of ourselves that there won't be much room for the Spirit of God and not much room for the light of the world to shine through us because we want to bask in the spotlight? Remember, God told Samuel, man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In the New Testament, it says it's something like this. Physical training is of some value, but training in godliness is of value in all things in all ways. Family, in what ways are we more concerned with looking good and more concerned with our outward shiny veneer rather than humbly asking God to mold our hearts and make us into men and women after God's own heart? Rather than asking God to change our circumstances, maybe we should be asking God to change us into the men and the women that he needs us to be in our future circumstances. And that brings us to chapter 17. You see, we need to think that stories like David and Goliath are not first and foremost about you and me. Y'all, if you're following along in your Bible and you saw David and Goliath, you're probably like, you know, your ears perk up a little bit. It's one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. And everybody thinks that they know the main point of this story, right? My hope is that maybe we'd reconsider what we think we know about this text. So let's just start in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, right? Well, who are the Philistines, okay? Uh, well, if uh, we were watching a movie, the Philistines would be the bad guys, right? Uh, they're a group of people still living in the promised land that the Israelites had failed to run out of town. They were supposed to do this. God had told them to do this, but they didn't. 
And ironically, in our culture, if you were to call somebody a Philistine, we'd often think of someone that's culturally backwards, but the Philistines are actually the strongest, most technologically advanced people of the time. If you were to follow along in this text, uh, they talk about the metals that the Philistines had more than like anything else. It says bronze, bronze, uh, mail, iron, all these things. Like uh, They were the first civilization to work with metals, and because of their superior weapons, like everybody around is afraid of them. The Israelites had like rocks and wood, okay? These guys had metals mail on, they had bronze armor, they had, you know, like all that stuff going for them. So let's look at the text. Here we go. Verse three, and the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, uh, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Y'all, this brother uh, could hit his head on a basketball hoop with just like doing a little you know, like one of, one of these guys working out his calves. And he, oh, man, and he hits his head on the rim, okay? It's humongous. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. Notice how many times it says bronze. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? And uh, am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him uh, and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. I don't know why, but every time I read this story to my kids, it has this deep, booming voice. I think a big man must have a voice like that. But maybe he talked like this. Who knows, you know? Uh, But that's Goliath, okay? Uh, This is what they called representative warfare, all right? One person fights on behalf of the army, and they win, uh, and then you win, right? Like, so uh, have you ever, anybody seen that movie Troy with Brad Pitt? Uh, I love me a good Brad Pitt movie, right? He's Achilles in that movie, and he's like sleeping, and they're like looking for the representative warrior, and then they have to go wake him up, and then he goes out, and he like kills his dude in like 30 seconds, and then he goes back to sleep, right? That's representative war, uh, is one person fights for the group, and whatever happens, they have to deal with the consequences of that afterwards. And verse 16 says that every morning and evening, Goliath did this speech, right? Where he says, why have you not come up for battle? Are you not servants of Saul? Like, every day, morning and evening. So every morning at breakfast, right, the entire Israelite army, they're out there, they're eating their breakfast, and they hear Goliath yelling at them, give me the man, give me a man. It's like he was tired of avocado toast and he wanted to try Israelite toast instead. Okay, this dude was so big he could eat them, right? Get in my belly. You know what he's saying, right? Uh, so 1 Samuel 17, 11 says, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. It's at this point in the story that the author reminds us of David who had been anointed king in the previous chapter but has yet to become king. David's back home, ten in the sheep. We know that he's less than 20 years old at this point because the age that was of requirement to be in the army was 20 years old, so he's, he's a pup. Since David is the only brother at home and his father must not have Uber Eats or Chomp yet, he decides he's got to send David with his food delivery out to the battlefield, right? And so uh, he sends him on a delivery with these snacks uh, for his brothers and their leaders. And verse 20 says, And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. So David brings snacks out for his seven older brothers who are doing uh, the fighting, uh, if you could call it fighting at that point, right? And then this is what verse 23 says. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. So before, all these people are fearful and dismayed, and now the one filled with the Spirit of God he hears him. And verse 32 is where I'll pick up. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. That's what all of their hearts are doing, right? Like He says, don't let that happen because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Basically, translation, Saul's like, uh, he's been a warrior longer than you've been alive. 
okay? Uh, this dude could eat you on his toast. And he goes on. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear or, uh, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. I don't even know what it looks like to have a bear or a lion with a beard, but that's pretty dope. Okay, he somehow gets the thing by the beard and he's able to take down lions and bears. And verse 37, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear uh, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Jump down to verse 42. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Like he wants to play fetch or something. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to this Philistine, you see, there's not, not a deep, booming voice for this little 20-something, you know, little kid, right? So I won't do that. Anyway, you come to me with a sword uh, and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your hand, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to, to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. Jump down to verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword. Okay, note, David didn't even have a sword, right? He has to pull this dude's sword out for him uh, and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled, and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines and plundered the camp. Y'all, the reason why I'm not worried about what David's voice sounds like is because David wasn't even worried about David's voice. Think about the audiences that he's talking about there. David's worried about what God's people would think of God, and he's worried about what the whole world would think of God. He's not worried about what they think of him. But here's the question of the day, right? What exactly is the main point of this story about David and Goliath? I ask this because uh, one of these stories, uh, this is one of those stories that's been taken out of context over and over again. Y'all are used to this with like Philippians 3.14, right? Like, and my God uh, can, will give me strength in all circumstances. Uh, what, what's, did I, I just got that totally wrong. Uh, the Philippians one is... Uh, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah, it's because people rip it out of context. That's how I was forgetting, right? right? If you looked at that verse in, con in context, it's all about actually uh, contentment. It's saying I can go through really difficult circumstances uh, and I can find joy and contentment in God in the midst of those circumstances. It's not saying I can pick up semis in God's strength, you know, which is like, you know, what some people seem to think at sometimes. So this is one of those passages like that that seems to get ripped out of context over and over again. Some people seem to think that the main point of the story of David and Goliath is that the bigger they are, the harder they fall, right? Like, because Goliath is nine foot, six inches tall. You get it, right? Like, that's, I guess that's the main point of that story then. Uh, some people think that the point of David and Goliath is like hope for the underdog. And so that gets me thinking about uh, how the last few years, it seems like it's only like Christian schools that seem to be like killing it as the underdog at the uh, NCAA tournament, right? You got St. Peter's, you got Loyola of Chicago, you got, uh, who was the other one? Uh, Oral Roberts the year before, 15 seed winning, right? And so I'm like, well, maybe they were just really hopped up on this David and Goliath version of the story. Like, it's all about the underdog, right? The ruddy little guy, you know, taking care of his business. Some people seem, seem to think that this story is about if you trust God, God will give you victory over all the giants in your life. But 
for those of us that have been here very long, you know what I'm going to say. The main point of the Bible story, uh, it comes about when we read the Bible the way that it's meant to be read, right? When we read a Bible passage like this, uh, we need to realize that in Bible reading, context is king. When we read a passage like this, we need to read it in the context of the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And we need to read 1 and 2 Samuel in the context of the whole story, this grand story of the Bible. You see, I think many of the bad interpretations of this passage simply come from reading the Bible as if it was written directly to you or to me. It's like uh, we, we fail to recognize that this is a book of the Bible that was written thousands of years ago. It was written to the original audience of God's people. It was highlighting history, and it was pointing out a few really significant leaders. And we can hear from God. I'm not saying that God doesn't speak directly to you and me today through the word of God. I'm saying he does. But the way that we hear from him is more like a triangle than it is a direct line from God, okay? It's like we need to understand what God was saying to those people. We need to understand the truths about God and what he's saying to them in that original context. And then we can hear from him those things uh, for us that are in line with that. You know what I mean? But so many people read David and Goliath as this direct line, like I got him on the phone and it's like, yeah, I can beat my giants, you know? But that's not what he's saying. So the first thing that I think we miss if we, if we think about it as this direct line uh, from David to us is that David's story in context isn't written first and foremost to get us to look to David, to get us to look through David to another hero. You remember what Sally Lloyd-Jones said so beautifully at the beginning of the Jesus Storybook Bible? Y'all, I, I love that one, okay? So we're just going to keep coming back to it. But she says, other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, she says, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away, and at times they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules. It's not a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. Y'all, when we look through David to this hero, we see that the Bible is not a collection of heroes whose examples we should emulate. Rather, it's about a savior who deserves our worship. You see, Jesus was the small, unassuming shepherd boy who fought the real giant, our sin and the curse of death, as our representative on our behalf while we stood on the sidelines like cowards doing nothing at all to help him out. As our representative, Jesus lived the life we were supposed to live in our place and died the death we were supposed to die. And just like David, uh, Jesus was opposed by all his brothers, abandoned by everyone at the moment of battle. He walked out onto that battlefield all alone and conquered the giant by himself. And now we, his brothers and sisters, get to share in his victory, even though we didn't lift a finger to help him. You see, the truth is, the real giant in our lives, our real Goliath, was our separation from God and the penalty we owned, owed for our sin. And that's something Jesus knocked out for us all on his own. And now, right, now that we've seen through David to the true and better hero and through Goliath to the real giant in our lives, we can receive the grace of God found in this story. You see, I think the, the real grace of God in this story is because Jesus has defeated the real giant in my life, I can courageously face lesser giants. So can we talk about some of those things for a moment? One of those is in Christ, I don't have to be afraid of death. In Christ, I don't have to be afraid of death. Y'all, I heard one of the best illustrations I've heard in my life this week, and I'm just going to tell it to you exactly the way that I heard it. Uh, there was a young girl, and she uh, tragically was at her mother's funeral. It's like 8, 10 years old, and, and she's uh, at, at the funeral. And as is at most funerals, uh, the pastor read Psalm 23 at the funeral. One of the verses is, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they, will com they comfort me. 
Y'all, this is like one of the greatest, you know, fears in, in my life, to be honest, right? It's like being that dad at some point in time. And uh, so they leave uh, said funeral. A little girl is with her dad, and it seems like they're driving home, and, and the little girl is processing the things that she's heard that day. And she says to her dad, she says, Daddy, what's the difference between death and the shadow of death? And the dad's like, that's a really profound question. Uh, and he's trying to think about how to respond. And as he's responding, uh, the semi-truck uh, drives by uh, them on the highway, and they're in the shadow of the semi-truck. And he says to his little girl, well, would you rather uh, be hit by that truck, or would you rather have the shadow of that semi come through us? He says, well, that's kind of how it is with God. Jesus took the full brunt of death in our place. So when we die in Christ, we only pass through the shadow of death because he, as our representative, endured all of it so that we would only have to pass through the shadow of death in our journey to be with him. You see, Harvest City, in Christ, we don't have to be afraid of death. In Christ, I don't, I don't have to fear that the future will burst out of control either. Let, let's say a, a close friend walks out on your life. Let's say you've got another relationship that's more secure than any other relationship. Oh, yeah, we do. It's that we have a good shepherd who knows, leads, feeds, and protects us. Like, think about Psalm 23. This is this ruddy little boy out in a pasture, maybe wrote it in a, in a pasture, like tending his sheep, right? It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Church, in other words, David wrote, I will never be abandoned. I will never be forsaken. I will be with God forever. This means even if I lose a close friend, even if I lose my job or I lose something else that really matters to me, it's not the end of the world. You're saying losing Jesus, yeah, that'd be the end of the world, but not losing those things. You are secure in Christ. And since he took care of the real giant in your life, you can trust that he will take care of you in the midst of these situations as well. This is another, another truth. It's in Christ, I don't have to fear the disapproval of others because I have the absolute approval of the only one whose opinions really matter. Y'all, some of us are completely consumed by the opinions of others as we walk through our daily lives. We fear wearing a certain pair of shoes because of a comment somebody made at one point in time and now we don't want to ever hear that again. We hold back from speaking the truth in a meeting because we care too much about what our coworkers might say about us later. Or we never walk across the road to meet that new neighbor because we don't want to be seen as the weird ones in the neighborhood. In Christ, we can rest secure knowing that even if people reject us, we have the continuous approval of the one whose opinion really matters. By the way, this is also how we gain the courage to be honest about our faults, to admit that we don't always have to have it together because we can appear weak before others because their, their admiration is no longer our life. It's no longer what makes us tick. Christ is my life. Christ is what makes us tick. Real courage is not the assurance that everything's going to go smoothly It's not what comes out when everything is, uh, you know, rainbows and butterflies. Real courage is not when there's no difficulties. Real courage is knowing that you have a God that's better than life, that's larger than death, and who has said, surely goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. So the question is, where did David learn that kind of courage? Because this ruddy little boy who's less than 20 years old goes out to fight some nine-foot, six-inch tall giant made of bronze that wants to eat him on toast. And so where did David find this kind of courage? Where did God prepare David to play the part of hero on the battlefield? And where did God prepare, prepare David to be king one day? Well, God prepared David for the palace, and he did that preparation in a pasture. Look at verses 16, or 13 and 14 back in chapter 16, okay? 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Sorry about that. I'm stretching my face. Uh, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. You're like, what happened there? Like we were talking about David and the spirit of the Lord filled him and they completely changed topic, right? To talking about Saul. Well, I think David learned that courage right there between verse 13 and 14. You see, in our Bibles, there's a paragraph break and a new heading right there. And the author takes the focus of the story from David back to Saul. But what happens to David after that? Well, David heads back out to the pasture with his sheep. How do we know that? Look at verse 19, right? Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Y'all, can you imagine what this is like for David? Samuel, the most important prophet in Israel, seeks you out, says God's chosen you. He pours oil on your head. You feel it run down your hair and your neck. The Spirit of God rushes into you. And then where do you go the next day? Well, not, not to the palace. Just back out there with the sheep in the pasture. Think about this. Be sure, but surely... A couple of years later, you know, when there's, when there's a battle, David wouldn't still be in the pasture. That's, that's not where he'd be, right? But that's exactly where his dad calls him out of when he has to make his chomp delivery with the Uber Eats, you know? David must have wondered if this was some kind of mistake, right? No mistake here. This is something we all need to understand. God uses the pasture to prepare his king. Only in the pasture does God build you into his skill, his patience, his endurance, and his character. Y'all, this is kind of a cheat code, but uh, Chuck Swindoll says that there's three words that characterize David's time in the pasture. If I was going to write down anything from this uh, sermon, these are the three words that I would write down. Obscurity, monotony, and reality. Obscurity, monotony, and reality. These are what characterize David's time in the pasture. You see, if you looked up obscurity in the dictionary, you'd find that it's the condition of being unknown. In other words, nobody else knows what's going on in the pasture. Nobody's giving you a grade for what's going on in the pasture. Nobody's giving you a gold star for what's going on in the pasture. Nobody's even giving you feedback about what's going on in the pasture the majority of the time. No one's paying any attention to what's happening in the pasture. That's obscurity. What about monotony? Well, think about David, how David probably spent his time watching the sheep. Well, uh, David, hey, how was your day today? You know, they're having dinner. Well, uh, yep, the sheep are still there, right? Uh, I watched them today. I fed them today. Uh, I even herded them, you know, into this new spot so they could get some new grass today. Like, uh, yep, so anything else? Yep, just spent, some, spent my time with the sheep. Uh, yeah, so what'd you do, you know, in the middle of the day when it's kind of warm out? Well, you know, sometimes, I guess, if you really want to know, and then it gets hot out, you know, like, I, uh, I set up these, uh, these cool little targets, you know, sometimes I use, like, fruit, and uh, sometimes I use these other little things, and then I get out my, uh, my, um, my little thing, my slingshot, and I just, I just start shooting them, you know, like, that's what I do, you know, to pass the time, because it seems like the sheep are all okay, and so, you know, I, I do that, and they're like, oh, okay, cool, you know, like, anything else, bro? Like, I, I mean, you're just watching the sheep, right? And he's like, well, well, yeah, like, you know, Dad lets me take my harp out, too. Like, so I take my harp out with me, and uh, sometimes after I'm done shooting things and I've had enough target practice, I get up to harp, and, and I, I sing songs, and I write poetry to go with those songs. You know, like, oh, okay. Like, sounds great, man. Like, uh, that's, that's what I do, you know, when I'm bored, when, when, when all the monotony has gotten to me. So you've got this obscurity and this monotony. But in the pasture, although it must have been monotonous and David may have been out there in relative obscurity, God in reality was shaping, forming, transforming, and equipping David. Y'all think about uh, the work that David did in the, monotony, in the monotony, just shooting that slingshot. I don't know, anybody think that maybe came in handy one day? Uh, think about with the harp and think about how we have a good chunk of our Bibles, y'all, that are poetry 
songs written by David probably played with that harp. Things like the 23rd Psalm, the most famous song probably ever written that's encouraged so many more believers in trial than any other in history. In the pasture, God developed David's courage. In the pasture, God developed David's confidence. David knew that if he could take down a lion and a bear out in the pasture, that surely by God's strength and by God's power, he could defeat this overgrown Philistine. In the pasture, he learned forgiveness and patience. He learned humility. You can only think so highly of yourself when your job is to scoop the poop of some sheep, right? And, and one of those secrets that we see of David throughout his life is that he always seemed to be aware of where he came from and how much he owed to God. Obviously, this is just how life works, isn't it? We see it clearly throughout God's word. When God calls us to something, he also prepares us for it. And he usually does that preparation in a place like a pasture. That pasture might look a little different for each one of us, right? Uh, for, some, for some moms, right, the pasture looks like uh, the changing table, right? It's changing a ton of diapers. It's, uh, it's pureeing those vegetables. It's, it's feeding your kid over and over again day after day, doing anything it takes, swallowing them up, wrapping them up like they're in one of those uh, straight jackets in order to get them to sleep at night. For some moms, that's what the pasture looks like. It's a preparation season. For some teachers, right, it might be uh, the first couple of years of school. Think about how, how hard it is to write your own lesson plans the first couple of years as a teacher, uh, and you're still learning what actually works in the classroom. You know, you're thinking about classroom management and the things you've been taught, and, and, you're, and it's just in those couple of years, God's preparing you. He's doing a work. He's changing you into the, the person that he needs you to be. For others, it looks like the first job out of college, right? Uh, for some of us, that's just a job where we sit in that desk chair, we do what we're told, we grind out these duties. Y'all, that, that could be the pasture. Uh, for still others of us, the pasture looks like taking classes about subjects that we're not sure we ever will need to know anything about, but still taking it seriously and putting in the time to study, right? Gen eds, those kind of things. Y'all, we will all experience obscurity and monotony in life. But the reality is that God is at work in it all, preparing you and moving his mission forward. So the question I leave us with this morning is this. How do you feel about the pasture? How do you feel about the pasture? Are you tired of the pasture? Do you see the pasture as a season that I need to endure rather than a season that I can enjoy to the glory of God? Church, David would have never written Psalm 23 if he'd not spent some time as a shepherd himself. And David would have never become the King David we remember if he'd not spent so many hours out in the pasture knowing, leading, feeding, and protecting his flock. You see, my prayer for each one of us this morning is that we would lean into the pasture in our lives to be transformed by the grace of God working through the spirit of God to the glory of God. You see, there's this habit that Jesus taught us that might seem monotonous if you think about how you've done it week after week after week after week every time we gather corporately in the body of Christ. And it's the, this, this habit of the Lord's Supper taking gluten-free bread here at Harvest City, uh, and whether it's white grape juice or red wine, and remembering all that Christ has done for us in this sacrament. This is what Jesus says about it in Luke chapter 22. He took bread and he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Y'all, in the pasture, we need simple things that we do over and over again to remind us of who he is and what he's done for us. This is what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about the Lord's table. It says, Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood called the Lord's Supper to be observed in his church unto the end of the world. That's a long time. For the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death, the sealing of all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him, and to be a bond. 
to be a pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. Y'all, how great is it to dwell upon the benefits given to us in this meal? The Lord's Supper is the seal that bonds us to Christ. It is food for our soul. It is a means of God's grace that provides for us a spiritual nourishment and growth. And it's this covenantal bond between us here, a communion with God and with one another, with the church and those who believe. So this is the point in our reunion where we're going to respond to the good news of the gospel and respond to the word of God preached. Uh, you can, if you're a believer in Christ, uh, Harvest City, you're invited to participate in the Lord's Supper. Uh, you come up the center aisle, uh, receive the elements, and take them back uh, to your seat and, and take them there. Um, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, we would just ask that you would uh, stay seated, remain uh, in your seat for that time, uh, and dwell on in your heart and in your mind um, the things of the, the good news of the gospel and what communion represents. Uh, and there's a couple other ways to respond. One would be, uh, there's gonna be a couple people in the back that you can pray with. Uh, if, if you're struggling in the pasture season and you just need somebody to pray over you in the midst of that for transformation and, and for God to do a work in your life, uh, man, this would be a great time for that. And the other one would just be uh, to sing um, with us from the bottom of your heart at the top of your lungs. Remember, we're not just singing to him. We're singing for one another and to one another as well. Will you pray with me? God, thank you so much. Thanks for stories uh, like this one that can remind us of what you have done. And that the real giant in our life was our separation from you because of sin. That, that the biggest conquering in our life is not a giant that we can conquer, but one that you have conquered on our behalf as our representative in battle. And thank you for the reminder of what grace is. Though we fearfully stood on the sidelines in, when you were in battle, we benefit from all that you've done for us on the cross and through your resurrection. God, help us to just to live in that, to remember all that you've done for us, and then to know that because you've conquered our real giant in life, that we can trust in you, and we can be courageous in the midst of these lesser giants in our lives. God, would you uh, encourage us, those of us that are in these pasture seasons right now, to be patient? Would you encourage us to cling to you? And would you even bring to our hearts and our minds right now, what are the things that you want to do in our hearts? Where, what is the preparation that you're working now so that we can walk into what you have for us in the future? We thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.